to grab them, open up to Acts chapter 13. And as you're finding your way there, there was a small portion of what we're going to cover, read for us a moment ago, but we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're going to uh, kind of survey the whole chapter and identify some elements that are related to what it means for you and I to find our stories in the big story of God. In 2012, there was a 75-year-old woman named Marion Shutliff. And she went into a used bookstore right outside of her home in San Clemente, California, and she bought a Bible. Uh, she brought the Bible home, and she noticed that there were uh, some couple of pages kind of folded and tucked into the middle of, of what the Bible she had just bought. And she opened it up, and she grabbed the pages, and she, it was clear that time had withered them, and time had turned those pages yellow. But then much to her surprise, and in an uncanny act of God's strange and perplexing providence, she opened up the page, and she noticed handwriting that was very familiar to her own. And she began to read these words that were written on this page, only to discover at the, na- at the end of it, it was signed uh, by her. And it turned out that this was an essay that she wrote when she was 10 years old, 2,000 miles removed from the place where she actually purchased this Bible in Covington, Kentucky. It was an article that she had, an essay that she had wrote as she was trying to earn a merit badge uh, in Girl Scouts. And somehow, in some way, this essay that she wrote as a 10-year-old found its way into the middle of a Bible that she randomly picked up and picked out at a bookstore in San Clemente, California. Now, she was sharing the story and and being interviewed about it. And you can imagine how surprised she was and how just dumbfounded she was. And this is what she said about that. I was deeply moved. I opened the Bible and there was my name. I recognized my handwriting and began to shake. Literally, I began to cry. A remarkable moment where she saw in a literal way her name, her words, her story nestled into the big grand story of the Bible. And as remarkable and as surprising as that was, you and I have a moment are going to take some time this morning to think about how much more remarkable and how much more astounding it is that we can find, quite literally, our stories in the big story of God, that we can find our lives in the midst and the middle of what God is doing in human history to bring about his kingdom, to advance his gospel amongst all the peoples in the world. And here in Acts chapter 13, we're going to see this play out in a variety of ways. We're going to see several people finding their stories in the big story of God. And we're going to discover some things about the heart that is desired for that purpose. The heart that we want to bring into uh, the story of God when we sync up in with it. We're also going to talk about the courage that is required because if you're going to find your little story in the big story of God, it will require courage. But then we're also going to see the the message, the, the gospel, the story that we get to tell when we are swept up in the big story of God. Now, a couple of people who experienced this in the Bible kind of set a paradigm and a pattern for you and I to follow, one of which is a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin, and if you remember, when at the beginning of the gospel, he's out baptizing people, he's preparing the way for the Messiah to show up, for Jesus to come and do his thing, and, and as he's standing there baptizing people, he notices Jesus walking in his direction, 
And when he recognizes that the Messiah has arrived and the Messiah is about to start really rolling God's kingdom into the world, he, he makes a crazy statement saying, you know, this one must increase and I must decrease. And when it comes to finding your story in the story of God, that's, that's the declaration you want to make. It's the declaration that says, you know, I need to decrease so that the Savior may increase, so that he might loom large in my life and in the world around me. When you are finding your story in the story of God, that's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm not going to bear the weight of trying to script my own story as I journey through this world and live this life. I'm going to remove that pressure off of my shoulders and put it on Jesus's shoulders because he's big enough and he's better enough to handle it. So when we find our stories in the story of God, that's what we're saying, that we're going to decrease so that the Savior can increase, so that he can loom large. You also see this playing out in Saul's experience. We met Saul in Acts chapter 9 when he began to... Um, when he met Jesus, and you know that Saul was most likely named after King Saul, a man of tall stature, a man who loomed large in his life, and he loomed large in his story in the Old Testament, and then Saul met Jesus, and, and what you're going to see is a shift that really takes root, or it, it happens hard in chapter 13, where we no longer read about Saul in the New Testament, we start reading about Paul. And though there were some missional dynamics to that change of name, Saul being his Jewish name, Paul being a Greco-Roman name, but there's also some theological, uh, there's an image there for us. Because when we find Saul, this man of big stature who loomed large in his story, all of a sudden being called Paul, you're seeing someone who's experiencing a, a growth that moves downward. Someone who is saying, I must decrease so that the Savior can increase because the name Paul literally means little. And so Paul gets small in his story. And what we want to do as we journey with Jesus through this world is we want to live small. We want to grow downward. We want to decrease so that the Savior can increase. And you see this happening in people's lives in this story. You're going to see this happen in the church at Antioch, which is kind of driving the mission forward in this moment. And when I think about who we are as a church, this is my prayer that we would be people who grow small, who grow downward who decrease so that the Savior and his kingdom can increase in the city of Seattle. But that's going to um, involve some things to happen within us and for us, one of which involves our heart. What type of heart is desired if this is the direction that God is calling us to? If we're going to find our stories in the story of God, what heart is desired? Well, you see this in the first three verses, a, a certain heart that is present in the church at Antioch, and I pray that it would be present, present in ours as well. And this is a heart that first reflects a passion for all peoples. It is a heart that reflects a passion for all peoples. You see this in the makeup of the church in verse 1. Because what you find in verse 1 is a heterogeneous description of the church. As you have people coming from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of cultures to worship Jesus in the church at Antioch. You have Jewish people and you have uh, Gentile people. Lucius and Simeon, they were from North Africa. Most likely they were African-Americans. They were black and present in the church, worshiping next to Jewish people like Saul and Greco-Roman people like Menaean and, and, of course, this islander named Barnabas who came from Cyprus. And so you have a variety of people coming together in the church at Antioch. And the church here is beginning, beginning to reflect a passion for all, for all peoples. 
And what I love about this moment is that this is the first time the church gets intentional about it. Because up to this point, the church has only moved towards different kinds of people when they were forced to do so. The church was forced out of Jerusalem by way of persecution. The Holy Spirit kind of forced the situation in the lives of certain individuals when when Jesus appeared or an angel of the Lord appeared to Peter in a dream and kind of quarterbacked that scene, something that Peter would not have been able to uh, resist. You see it in the Ethiopian story when Philip is brought by the Spirit to meet with the Ethiopian eunuch and to share the gospel with this person who was unlike him. So up until this point, we find God kind of forcing the issue. But here in chapter 13, the church actually starts to cooperate with it. And they begin to reflect a heart for all peoples. So they're coming together. They're praying and fasting. They're listening to the Spirit. And they're making an intentional decision to cross cultures through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. It's a beautiful maturation that happens here in the church. But then another dynamic of this heart that is desired, not only a passion for all people, but it's a heart that refuses to separate worship and witness. In verse 2, we're told that as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, they were communing with Jesus together. The Holy, Be- Holy Spirit began to speak, and they began to respond. They were, their worship of the Lord together led to their witness, to their mission, to their ministry in the world around them. And so the kind of heart that is desired, if we're going to find our stories in the big story of God, is a heart that refuses to separate worship and witness. But this is something that is very easily done. It is very easy for Christians to separate worship and witness. It's possible for you to have a Christianity and to engage in a form of Christianity that has that's entire lifespan is Sunday morning or Sunday evening. And the extent of your discipleship is what happens when we come together like this on a weekly basis. And if you may have worship, but your worship isn't driving your witness, and so you're presenting a form of godliness, but you're denying its power. Because it is the worship of the Lord that should compel our witness to the world so that we don't just present a form of godliness in our worship. We allow that worship to provide power and fuel and energy to the witness that we bring into the world around us. We don't want to separate worship from witness, but then the flip side of that is also true. We don't want to be about witness to the neglect of our worship. And some of us can get into a tendency where Christianity is all about trying to do things for Jesus. We're telling everybody about Jesus. We're very active. We're very engaged um, in different avenues and areas of life. And, and we're witnessing, we're working, we're ministering, we're serving, but we're, we're not doing it in the context of worship. We're not taking the time to rest before the Lord and like Mary, sit at Jesus' feet trying to avoid becoming like Martha, who's at work in the kitchen, forgetting that really being with Jesus is the heart of the matter. And so when we have witness without worship, what happens is we engage in a form of Christianity. We engage in a story that that, that isn't very long. And eventually your heart, your energy, your motivation will dry up and it will dry out. It'll be like kind of like trying to run a vehicle without oil. If you don't have oil in your car engine, your car engine is going to dry up, it's going to lock up, and it's not going to last very long. My first car was a 1986 Dodge Ram 50. It was this little quirky truck that I got from my grandfather, and it was a quirky truck in the sense that as I'm driving down the street, I could pull the key out of the ignition and toss it to the passenger and freak them out because the car would keep rolling. And they're looking at the key in their lap wondering, what's going on? But then it was also quirky because this was a truck that required two quarts of oil a week. 
uh, two quarts of oil. It just burned oil like crazy. And every time I cranked it up, it would burn the oil so fast that black smoke would just kind of pume up from between the bed and the cab. It would just come up so people could see me coming before they actually saw me coming. They just looked for the smoke in my town saying, oh, Andrew's over there. And they, they knew where I was. But, but I had to apply this oil and pour it into the truck constantly on a weekly basis because without it, the engine was going to lock up. Without it, the truck was going to start stop rolling. And there's a a deep reality in the heart of every Christian that apart from worship, you will dry up. You will dry out. Your heart for all peoples, your engagement in the ministry and the mission of Jesus will lock up and dry out. So we don't want to separate worship and witness. We want to keep the two cemented and welded together forever and always. And so you have a heart here that reflects a passion for all peoples. You have a church that's refusing to separate worship and witness. It is their worship of the Lord that drives them towards the nations. And then lastly, you find a heart that's responsive to the Spirit's activity. That as they're worshiping, the Spirit begins to speak and they listen. The Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. As they're fasting and praying, they hear this word from the Lord and they say, okay. And they're responding to what the Spirit is doing and they're responding together. Sometimes we are wrestling through the will of God, trying to discern, okay, what direction is Jesus leading me into or us into or my family into or whatever the case may be. And you find two dynamics at play here where the spirit is at work. And these two dynamics need to be ordinary in your discipleship. That if you're trying to discern God's will and figure out what direction am I supposed to go in as an individual, as a family, two sources. One, there's the internal impression and witness of the Holy Spirit. It's when the spirit begins to quicken within you a desire, a passion, an interest, a burden. The still small voice of God begins to echo in your soul and you begin to have these reoccurring thoughts, these reoccurring interests. And you're wondering, is this God speaking to me? What am I supposed to do in response to this? That's one part of the equation. But if you're only going to act on that, I would say that is an insufficient just to have that element of that variable is going to uh, that you need more. That you don't just need the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. You also need the external affirmation of the church. This is why community matters. This is why church matters. This is why being together matters so that people can observe and speak and share and edify so that the Lord might speak through someone to affirm what's going on in your soul and in your heart. And when you have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, the external affirmation of the church, that's when you can go forth in confidence. That's when you can make decisions without regret. You can make decisions without looking over your shoulder, wondering, well, did I screw this up? Did I make a wrong choice? If you're listening to the internal witness of the Spirit and you're submitting to the external activity of the church and the affirmation of the church, that's when you can go forth in confidence and in peace and in courage. And this is what happens here. Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the Spirit as being affirmed by the church. And the church comes around them and lays their hands upon them and sends them off. And I love the imagery here of the church laying their hands on, Saul, on Barnabas and Saul because it's reminiscent of what went down in the Old Testament when an Old Testament worshiper would offer up a sacrifice to the Lord. And before making the offering, they would lay, lay their hands on the offering and as a way of identifying with it, saying what this offering is going to do, it's doing it for me. And so you had this close identification between the worshiper and the offerer that would be illustrated through the laying on of hands. Well, here the church is laying their hands on Barnabas and Saul saying, look, we are with these two. We are for these two. We are identifying with these two. What they are going to do, we are all a part of. 
What they are going to, how they are going to serve Jesus is how we as a church are serving Jesus. There was such a close identification, solidarity, camaraderie amongst all the people there. This is why when we commission church planters or missionaries or anything along those lines, we take some time to pray together and to literally lay our hands on others, affirming people, saying, we are with you, we are for you, we, are, we trust Christ in you, and when you go, we go, and as you serve, we serve. We're all in this together. And so you have this heart that is desired, and this is one that we want in our church, a heart that has a passion for all peoples, that refuses to separate worship and witness, and that is responsive to the Spirit's activity, and that response is happening together. And it is this dynamic that I think is what infuses courage into Paul and Barnabas as they go to serve Jesus. So when you look at verses 4 and 5, Paul, Barnabas, and then we're introduced to a guy named Mark. Mark would serve as an assistant, and they would go to the island of Cyprus to share the gospel. And as they're serving Jesus on that island, we begin to see various types of courage at work. And I want to see you talk a little bit about the courage that is required if you're going to find your story in the story of God. The first is the courage to, quite simply, encourage other people. You see this in Barnabas and Saul's leadership dynamic. If you remember earlier in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas was the one who went and searched for Saul and brought him back to the church at Antioch. It was Barnabas, it seems, who played a pivotal role in Saul's discipleship. He was investing in Saul. He was encouraging Saul. He was seeing Saul grow up in the faith. And up to this point in time, when Barnabas and Saul are mentioned together, Barnabas is mentioned first. Now, when you read lists of names in the New Testament, the order of those names matter. It was a way for them to talk about, you know, it was a way for them to move from leadership. This is why when you read the list of disciples in the Gospels, Peter's name is often listed first because he was the lead apostle. Well, when you see Barnabas and Saul listed together, it's because there's a sense in which Barnabas was the one discipling Saul and was taking responsibility for Saul's growth and maturation in the faith. But notice there's a shift that happens in this story. When you drop down to verse 2, you have Barnabas and Saul. Verse 7, Barnabas and Saul are mentioned there. But then you get to verse 13, and this is where Barnabas begins to fade into the background. And Paul begins to come out into the focus. And the narrative begins to focus heavily upon Paul and his mission. And this will be true for the rest of the book of Acts. And in verse 13, it states, Paul and his companions, what you find here is the courage to encourage, meaning Barnabas had the courage to invest in Saul and to raise Saul up and to encourage him in leadership and in influence. And if you're going to find your story in the story of God, this is to be an ordinary aspect of how you do so, that you would have the, the courage to encourage, in other words, to give leadership away, to give influence away. To see other people raised up to do the things you were doing and probably do the things you were doing better than you were doing. Not being afraid to give away leadership. Not be afraid to give away influence. That's what discipleship is all about. And it does require courage. And so let me ask you, do you have the courage to give leadership away? Do you have the courage to give influence to those around you? You see this in Barnabas and Saul's relationship. But then there's also the courage to confront present here. When they show up to Cyprus, they are immediately met in a kind of a confrontation or a conflict. Notice verse 6. It says, when they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. 
He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and went to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Verse 9, but Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas. And he confronts him and he speaks harshly to him. He says, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately he missed and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. This confrontation reminds me of what happened in uh, the two towers when Gandalf confronted Wormtongue. And Wormtongue was spitting poison and lies into Theoden, the king of Rohan's ears, and really distorting his mind, distorting his thinking, preventing him from being who he was supposed to be. And then Gandalf steps up and he confronts Wormtongue. He speaks harshly to him. He even says, be silent. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. That's a harsh, that's direct confrontation. Well, as you find your story in the story of God, there will be times when you must have the courage to confront. Where you must show the courage to confront darkness, to show courage to confront distorted gospels to show courage to confront anyone or anything that is hindering the advancement of the gospel in the life of someone that you may be ministering to. Paul is taking responsibility for Sergius Paulus. He's responsive to the gospel. He wants to believe, but there's this guy hindering that. So he says, look, you got to stop this. And he calls God's judgment down upon him. You have this confrontation that occurs. It is one that, that you will experience the more you find your story in the story of God. And there's a wonderful contrast here where you have Paul who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's an important dynamic. If you're ever going to engage in confrontation, make sure you're doing it as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, not just being filled with anger or frustration or irritation at someone that you're mad at. Right? We don't want to confront out of the flesh. We want to confront out of the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so if you are in doubt that that's what's happening, that may be a good sign because some of you are way too quick to confront and you're way too quick to run into that moment. And a lot of times, uh, not a lot of good, good fruit comes out of it because you might not be doing it because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It might be because you're filled with envy. It might be because you're filled with jealousy. It might be because you're filled with frustration or whatever the case may be. Paul confronted this guy as he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we confront darkness, we have these types of moments. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit as well. I remember there were uh, a few guys who used to come to our gathering when we were meeting down at Fremont Baptist Church. And these were guys who liked to hang out in the, uh, by the troll on Sundays. And they would bring out their megaphones and they would claim to represent Jesus. And they would confront people on the street. Well, when they learned that we were meeting in Fremont Baptist, they started sliding into our service. And they would come in groups of three, four at a time. And they would kind of observe things. They would listen to the teaching, this, that, and the other. But then after coming a couple of times, they started kind of pulling people to the side and, and trying to confront them in their discipleship. And they would claim that we were communicating a distorted gospel, that we weren't representing Jesus. And they would blast me and my preaching and all this. And they would call people to give evidence for their conversion and are you saved and this, that, and the other. And it was very uh, distorted. It was very dark. It seemed quite demonic. And there came a point where we had to say, okay, we can't allow this to continue. They're hindering people from hearing the gospel. And so we had to confront. 
And so we would step back and I would pray to myself before engaging in those conversations. Holy Spirit, help me to say what needs to be said in this moment. Help me to confront what needs to be confronted. And, and we would have conversations and confrontation would ensue. And, and at one point, I believe I used the, the, the effective weapon of sarcasm that allowed them to realize that they needed, they were not welcome here and that they should leave. There was a moment where we had this music playing in our speakers. Sidebar, Sunday morning. We had this music playing in our speakers and and the guy looked at me and said, how can you have this worldly demonic music playing in your speakers? And it was just instrumental. It had no words, had no lyrics, and he was claiming it to be demonic. And, and I said, I don't know, man. I guess we're just, you know, yeah, we're just terrible at what we do. <laughs> just kind of started playing into his, his um, animosity with sarcasm. And I said, pretty soon, probably some demons are going to fly out of the speakers. I'd be very careful if I were you uh, to not be near them. And, and that's kind of what broke the moment. And he turned and left and they never came back. So the Lord willing was able to use a little sarcasm to diffuse this situation that was becoming quite harmful to those who were being confronted by these people. Well, when you find your story in the story of God, understand that you are stepping into a story where there is conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, between the kingdom of the beloved son and the kingdom of darkness. And just as Jesus has ambassadors and representatives in this world, Satan has ambassadors and representatives in this world. And oftentimes, those ambassadors will present themselves using the name of Jesus. They will call themselves Christians. They will Bring out a type of gospel in you being filled with the Holy Spirit, growing in your faith, learn to discern, learn to know what is right, learn to know what is wrong. And when the Spirit enables and empowers, you confront those dynamics when you're serving and loving people with the gospel. So you have this courage of confrontation that is present here. But then there's one other dynamic of courage that I want to call your attention to, and it's quite, it's one I want to challenge you with, and it's called the courage to return. And here's what I mean by this. Look at verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John, that is Mark, the one who came along as their assistant, left them and went back to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he left them in this moment. He may have left because he was afraid. He may have left because he didn't like confrontation. He may have left because he got homesick. He may have left because he didn't like how uncomfortable their sleeping arrangement was or whatever the case may be. But he deserted Paul and Barnabas in this moment. And you read later in Acts chapter 15 that this desertion created tension and conflict between these guys. So that in Acts chapter 15, John Mark wanted to come back. He wanted to return. And Barnabas was all for it because Barnabas is an encourager and he just, he's very gracious. But Paul was a little bit more uh, on the truth side of things a lot of times and he didn't want Barnabas, he didn't want John to come back. And he even says this in Acts chapter 15, verse 37. I'm sorry, verse 38. Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. So Paul wouldn't let him come back. But we do know that at some point in time after that, before Paul's days were ended in this world, that he and Mark reconciled. That eventually John had the courage to return and Mark received him and reconciled with him so that one of the last things that Paul writes in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he would tell Timothy to bring Mark. That's the same John listed there. Bring Mark with you for he is useful to me in ministry. And so reconciliation occurred Mark returned to the fold and he rejoined the work of Jesus in the world. Now, here's what I want you to think about. 
There's a tendency and a trend, I think, in many Christians' lives and in and many churches are experiencing this in this city and in other places. It's a trend in our culture that our culture refers to as ghosting. And uh, ghosting is what happens when uh, you begin to pull back from a commitment or you begin to pull back from a relationship and you desert the commitment, you desert the relationship without any conversation. You just ghost. Somebody will reach out to you, they'll text you, they'll call you, you just ignore it, you ghost, you block on Facebook, you block on social media, and you just ghost people that you have committed yourself to or that you were in relationship with. Ghosting is the coward's way of dealing, of breaking a commitment. Ghosting is a coward's approach to relationship, and it is a cowardly approach to commitment. And if ghosting is a part of your rhythms, you are stunting yourself. You are sabotaging your own growth as a Christian. You are sabotaging your own maturation in the faith. I've seen this happen over the eight years we've been planting. Where people who've committed to the church, they've committed to Jesus, they just ghost. They go dark and you don't know where they are. They're unresponsive. And if you're tempted in that direction for any reason whatsoever, understand that if you ghost, you are being a coward. And if you ghost, you are shortchanging your development as a disciple of Jesus. And what I love about John in this story, he may have been wrong for deserting Paul. We don't know the details, but we do know at some point in time, he had the courage to return. At some point in time, he had the courage to have a hard conversation with Paul and Barnabas and everyone else. And so I would encourage you, if things are changing in your life and you need to adjust commitments or relationships need to change... Have the courage to return to those moments and to have hard, hard, humble, holy conversations that will serve your soul well in the long run. What has happened too often with those who have ghosted churches, our church and other churches that I'm in fellowship with in the city, it doesn't take long before we realize that those disciples are no longer walking with Jesus altogether. And they're no longer ghosting the church, they're ghosting Jesus. And that's when things get really that's when things really go south and sideways. And so I just encourage you to have the courage to return. Don't be a ghost in your commitments. Don't be a ghost in your relationships. Press into those moments. Have the courage to return. Only then will you really begin to find yourself, find your story in the story of God because God doesn't ghost. He doesn't ghost his people and he doesn't want his people to ghost either. So the courage required, this courage that encourages this courage that, yes, confronts, and this courage that is the courage to return when, when need be. So Paul and Barnabas, they, uh, they're bailed on by Mark, but then they continue to Pisidian Antioch. And this is where um, we begin to find the message declared, where Paul begins to tell the story of God to a bunch of eager listeners. Notice verse 15. After Paul and Barnabas showed up in this new place, they go into the synagogue, they sit down, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Now, this was common in the synagogues. This is one of the ways in which they worship. Somebody would stand up, they would read the law, they'd read the prophets, and then they would ask somebody from the congregation to stand up and comment on it. It's a pretty risky thing if you were to do that today, but that was customary then. And so Paul saw this opening and said, I'm going for it. You're going to let me speak, I'm going to speak. And so Paul stands up and he begins to tell the story of God. He begins to declare the gospel. He tells them about Jesus. And there's some remarkable things about what he says. This is the first sermon that Paul will preach in the book of Acts. It won't be the last. 
but it is the first. And what I want you to see is that he delivers a historical message to the people that he is talking to. From verse 17 all the way down to verse 37, you have Paul talking about the history of Israel. And he's telling this Jewish congregation about their story. And he's confronting their story with the narrative of Jesus, with the story of God. And I love what he does here because he mentions God about 16 times. And every time God is the actor. Every time God is the subject. In other words, Paul realizes that history is God's story. He realizes that all of reality centers on God. And if you're going to find your story in the story of God, you must shift from being a self-centered person to being a God-centered person. The Christian worldview is one that says, look, life doesn't revolve around any person, place, or thing. Life revolves around the creator and redeemer of the universe. And so Paul's message is going to affirm this. Just notice some of the examples. Verse 17, it says that God chose Israel. It made, he made them prosper. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Look at verse 18. It says that God put up with the people of Israel in the wilderness. I love that phrase. Verse 19, it says that God destroyed nations and gave the land to his people. Verse 20, it says God gave judges, that is leaders, to Israel when they needed leaders. Verse 21 and 22, God gave kings to Israel in that moment. Verse 23, it says that God brought them Jesus, the best thing he does for his people. Verse 30, we're told that God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 33, it is God that fulfilled the promises. Verse 37, it was God who raised up Jesus never again to decay. God is acting. Paul is delivering a God-centered take on history. And when you find your story in the big story of God, you begin to read history the same way. You begin to realize that all of reality centers on God, that he is the most important, important, how do you say this word? Important person and actor in human history. But then as he's doing this, he's he's drawing out the fact that all of this is a gospel. There's a gospel message. There's good news for everyone who he's talking to in verse 26. He refers to the word of salvation. Verse 32, he refers to good news. And then notice verse 38. Verse 38, he says, therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. The good news that he's talking about is like, well, look, you can be forgiven of your sins. The good news that he's talking about is, look, your life can be justified. When we are trying to write our own stories, we're trying to write a script of self-justification. We're trying to make things right for us. And that's really hard to do. The Bible would say that's impossible to do. So rather than trying to justify yourself and writing your own story, let yourself be justified. Find yourself in the story of Jesus and let him forgive you. Let him declare you righteous. Let him deal with the deepest wounds of your heart, these wounds that have been irritated over and over and over again by guilt and fear and shame and you've tried to heal those wounds yourself but you've been unsuccessful Jesus is telling this group look I mean Paul is telling this group that Jesus has come to do all that for you he's come to forgive you he's come to justify you he's come to give you a better story than the story you've been writing for yourself all these years and so this story that he's referring to is that this message is a gospel message and then lastly it is a personal message Verse 40, Paul says that you must respond personally to this story of God, to this story of Jesus. 
to this historical message, to this gospel message, there's a personal response required. Verse 40, he tells them, beware that, it, beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away. Because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. And then verse 42, this mixed response began to break out. Some people wanted to hear more. Others dismissed them. Some got angry with them. A mixed reaction, but Paul kept pressing in. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Because this is happening, we're going to move to others. We are turning now to the Gentiles. Now, notice what he says. He says, you have rejected this, and as you have rejected this gospel, you are judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. God doesn't judge you unworthy of eternal life. You judge yourself of that when you reject the good news of what Jesus lived for, died for, and rose from the grave for. If you refuse to find your story in the big story of God, you are judging yourself in that moment. You're cutting yourself off from living a life of significance. You're cutting yourself off from living a life of stability. You're cutting yourself off from living a life that is deeply satisfying, one that is marked by joy and life and gladness, one that is characterized by worship and witness. When you reject that reality, you're cutting yourself short. But then one of my favorite parts of his sermon happens in verse 47, and this is where I'll, I'll leave us. Verse 47, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He says, for this is what the Lord has commanded, and circle that word, us. This is what the Lord has commanded, us. Referring to him and Barnabas, and by extension, the church back in Antioch. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. The reason why that is significant, because that is a quote from the book of Isaiah that is used ultimately in reference to Jesus, which is why Jesus, when he steps onto the world, he says, I am the light of the world. I have come to bring eternal life, to bring salvation. That's what Jesus came to do. And, and Isaiah 49 verse 6 speaks directly to Jesus and what he would do. But now notice what Paul is saying. He's taking that moment and he's applying it to all of Jesus' people. He's saying the story of Jesus continues now through our story in the church. Saying that you as a disciple of Jesus, you now are light. You now have the responsibility to bring salvation, the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. He's saying Jesus' story is continuing through the stories of all of his servants, through the stories of all of his people. This is why we want to be a church that finds our story in the story of God. Because God created us and he redeemed us to serve that narrative. To bring the worldview of the resurrection to bear on the city of Seattle. To bring the worldview world of the resurrection to bear on the lives of everyone we come in contact with. This is our privilege. This is our responsibility. This is what it means to find our stories in the story of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we think through these truths? God, there's a lot for us to meditate upon in light of this story. And I pray that your spirit would bring to mind what we need to think about and would cause our heart to, to respond appropriately to, to all that you were doing and the story that you have written for the world around us. God, would you help us to have the heart that you desire 
God, would you help us to have the courage required and would you fill us with the message of the gospel so that we can find our story in your big story? God, would you work that out in Jesus' name? Amen.